Welcome to this, the final episode in this series of Bookish. Bookish is a podcast in which you get to hear me, Viv, your host and Grand Inquisitor, have conversations with people who write for money and make them explain how and why. If I sound very excited, that's because I am. In this episode, I get to have a conversation with one of my all-time favourite short story writers, Adam Marek. His first book of short stories, Instruction Manual for Swallowing, came out in 2007. I first heard about it because it was published by Comma, who are an independent publishing company in Manchester who specialise in short story collections, some of which have been the absolute best books of the last 10 years. If you've not heard of them or read anything by them, then um, then go to the website, have a look around, and you'll, you'll definitely find something. So I found myself back in Frinsby Park this time, as you'll hear, in a rather noisy Turkish cafe, and I didn't really know what to expect of Adam having read this book. It's insane. It's, it's insane. It's an insane book. It's a wonderful book, but it's insane. But just like other writers you hear about who create similarly extreme fictional worlds whilst simultaneously having what appears to be a disconcertingly very normal, happy and well-adjusted lives, like J.G. Ballard or David Cronenberg uh, or, or William Burroughs, he was, <laughs> maybe not William Burroughs, he was just a really nice guy who was very much interested in the craft and the mechanics of fiction. And listening back, there's plenty of things that I wish I'd asked him that just didn't occur to me at the time. I wish I'd ask him for more details about what sounds like a huge amount of unpublished work that he that he mentions. And mostly since I met him, I found out that he's a massive Morris Sendak fan. And I could probably talk all day about Morris Sendak's cross-hatching, but that might not make for such an interesting listen for you folks. So, if, And if you listen to the end, you'll hear Adam reading the title story, The Stone Thrower, from his forthcoming collection which will be out later this year so that's a bookish exclusive for you guys but with regards to instruction manual for swallowing i'm never sure how to describe what that book is like or what it's all about or what its style is or what its themes are when it came out there was a review in the guardian which i think sums it up better than i could so i'm going to read a little bit out of it just so in case you haven't read it or aren't aware of it you'll know it says there's a transgressive thrill to adam merrick's debut collection of short stories that's not simply a result of the potency of the subject matter, though male rape, suicide and cannibalism all get an outing. Marek is interested in boundaries and their penetration, whether it's a boy's foot pierced by a fork or a man swallowing coding tablets to enter his own subconscious. The stories take in robotic wasps, lovesick centipedes and a grotesquely multiple pregnancy, a relentless round of oddities that would pall were it not for Marek's knack of melding the absurd with the prosaic to create tales as playful and emotionally resonant as they are disturbing. Couples row in the face of giant lizards. Insects mourn lost wives. And the town of Biggleswade is the setting for a futuristic realm of the flesh-eating undead. It's always hard to tell if there's actual critical resurgence or something, or if it's just kind of publishers basically getting excited about something. It's, no, it's, good. it's a good thing when people say there is a resurgence of short stories, because whether it is a there is a genuine peak of, of interest, I think, because 
any kind of um, talking about how great they are that gets more people um, reading them or reignites people's taste for them is a is a good thing. So you know, it, if uh, 2013 is also the year of the short story, it'll be a good thing, I think. Do you do you read more short stories than you do novels? It's a different kind of experience. I want to read a great short that really really kind of hits the. Say hits the nail on the head. That's the worst. That's a, that's a dreadful word. I didn't think I was a writer. I to, so I sometimes think about short stories as a um, like a metaphor of a you know how uh, when you've got a magnifying glass and you've got the and you hold the magnifying glass up towards the sun and you it makes a, a kind of bright disc on the on the floor and if you position the magnifying glass just right it makes a pinpoint of light and when it gets sharp enough and if the sun's bright enough it burns a hole in the paper um, or sets fire to an ant or whatever, whatever you do with the magnifying glass in the summer that for me is is the difference between short stories and novels and that a great novel will be like a kind of warming experience but a short story can can reach that point of focus where every you know, every word is contributing t- towards it, achieving something and if it does achieve it it burns a hole in the in the paper and it's you know the moment when you finish reading something and you if it's if you've really enjoyed it you have to kind of sit there and just kind of swallow it and, and digest it for a few moments if you read something really great you just can't move from your seat for a few minutes, and you can't. You couldn't consider reading something else straight away or doing anything else. You just need to recover from having finished it. And I think that the amount of time that you spend afterwards thinking about it can be as long as a novel, even though you know the scale of the thing is so much different. So I love the story. Like one of my favourite short stories, the the lottery by Shirley Jackson. Have you have you read? I have read it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When I first finished reading that, it just. The, the shock of the, the kind of final sentence where they, they're all picking up the stones and you, you don't yeah. know what's going to happen and it's all been everything up to that point has just been so artfully delivered I, could, you know, I couldn't do anything for, for a few minutes after reading it but uh, often novels finish and are very dissatisfying I don't think I've read many novels where the, where the ending is just so um, so perfect I'm left you know, kind of kind of breathless and left in that state where I, I don't want to move for there's, a, there's, there's kind of there's more rules, I suppose, in writing a novel. Do you think short stories tend to lend themselves to fiction that's not necessarily horror, per se, has a kind of dark undercurrent to it? When I'm writing, I'm always trying to make opposites, make things that don't necessarily fit together, fit together in, in some way, you know, unusual combinations of things, so like horror and science fiction and, and comedy, and then very kind of set within a very mundane kind of often like family setting that's the pleasure for me is making opposites fit together I think some of the most popular um, it's alright they're not coming for us <laughs> in the States the, some of the most popular genres of, of short fiction are you know, science fiction short stories and horror short stories if you're writing the genre you can um, there, there are a lot of publishing opportunities for them it's, it's not quite the same over here there are so many different kinds of, of short stories I think there's the you know the tales of the unexpected roll doll kind of t- twist in the uh, in the tale that works very that works very well with the short story form but then you know I enjoy short stories that sometimes that just don't go anywhere they're just kind of beautiful little 
observances of some, you know, seeing something really ordinary in a different way for the first time. What sort of reaction have you had from readers? Some people who like my stuff uh, are science fiction readers, some read literary fiction, some read both. I borrow elements from a lot of different genres and kind of put them together, so I wouldn't say there was a, a natural a natural fit for one or the other. And some of my my favourite writers, I guess, fit into that same in-betweeny uh, yeah. genre. It's like, uh, like Karen Russell or Haruki Murakami. A lot of Will Self's stuff is, does that really uh, yeah, surreal. But there is a sort of, a sort of non-genre in short stories. Is that sort of thing. I think really interesting things can happen when you're right if you're writing outside of your genre and trying something new. You're the genres are built up around around rules, and if you're coming from a different rule rule system, then you um, you might achieve something that people who are well established within that within that genre, um, you know, things that they wouldn't necessarily have have done. I got a commission last year to write a story for a new book called um, the Icon New Heroes Rising, which is a book of short stories about an anthology of short stories all about a whole new suite of superheroes in the in the vein of uh, like Sherlock Holmes or Conan these like episodic heroes where they they um, you know each story isn't about their arc from beginning to Success. Each is an individual episode. You know, their stories are told in, yeah. in the form of episodes. That's something I've not done before. I really, really wrestled with it because the hero genre is just so well trodden. It's been so well done by so many people that you know, doing something original is, is what I'm, I'm hoping to do every time I sit down at my desk. Um, so it was a real struggle. I, I brainstormed about about sixty different different story ideas around different different heroes and some of them I fleshed out quite a lot you know, some of them didn't last more than a sentence or two but there are others I, I wrote half the story before scrapping it I was really going crazy and um, spent months and then finally came up with a, a story that the publisher was really happy with and it, it kind of bent, bent the rules of the brief a bit but did still fulfil it as well and I think if I was well used to writing within that Genre, I might not have. Yeah. I wouldn't have come through that same yeah. that same route. The more rules you can have for a particular form of writing, the more interesting it is that you've got like yeah, yeah. to find your escape route, I suppose. So. Definitely. I was going to ask you about if you have like a routine for writing. I I get up at six every day and I go and I write in the in the attic. So for uh, for most of my writing career, I've had a, a full time job, you know, nine to nine to five, fifteen. So I've got two kids as well. So the only time I could find to write every day was to get up at six and um, write for an hour, an hour and a half before going off to work. Just in the last few months, I've, I've gone my copywriting work. I've gone freelance with, so I've got a bit more flexibility, which means I've got more hours in the day to write now, which is great. But I've never got any other rituals. I always. I write best in my attic. I've tried writing in other other places, cafes or whatever. But um, no, I'm happiest in my attic with a nice clean desk. So now you've got more free time, though. Is that gonna? Yeah, I'm not so productive in the afternoons. Actually, more this. I definitely notice morning is the uh, the time when my creative brain is is awake and doing interesting things. Um, I just I got maybe work for a little bit longer now, whereas before I would have had to pack up at half seven. I can go on till 
you know, nine or ten before beginning my, my uh, copywriting work. Do you find that, I mean, I always find it really weird and awkward to try and, if you meet people, I just, and they ask what, what I do, I just tell them about, like, I'm with an office, I don't really tell them about it, with all the other stuff I do, which is like, for me, you know, the most important thing, just because I find it, I don't know why, I just find it kind of a bit awkward. Do you, sort of? Sometimes people are really interested, sometimes people are completely uninterested as well. Before I had a story published, telling people, you know, when you say to people, when I would say to people, I'm a, actually no, I would never say to people, I'm a, I was ashamed to say I was a, a writer before I'd actually had anything published, even though I spent a huge amount of my time doing it. And if they'd say, what do you do in your spare time? I said, oh, I like to, you know, I'll write short stories or I'll write, you know, I'm working on a, on a novel. People don't seem... Well, people look, often weren't particularly interested, but then there's this weird thing that happens as soon as you've had something published. Now I completely lost where I was going with that. <laughs> going back and asking another question. <laughs> in sort of like themes, like one of the themes seems to be in the instruction manual following is like I guess you, you could call it like body horror. There's lots of sort of flesh and skin and muscles and you know, things kind of going wrong in the human body. That's yeah, no, I'm fascinated with biology and, uh, and the human body. I, originally, when I, when I was uh, in my late teens, I really wanted to be a filmmaker and I was absolutely obsessed with um, the David Cronenberg movies. So I, got, I, spent, I watched Cronenberg movies over and over and over again and um, you know, wrote essays about him at, at, at film school and things like that. So... Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I can see David Cronenberg, the influences of that. I can't remember the one, the story about what it's called, the one that's about the woman who's giving birth to... Be- 37, she's pregnant with 37 babies, yeah. It's called yeah. Belly Full of Rain, yeah. That, I, I imagine that's a popular story. Just, I imagine that people, yeah, I think people remember that one, I'd, I'd say. <laughs> I think that's one of my favourite ones in the uh, in instruction manual, I think. And it was... Um, a lot of that, I wrote that a year or two after my wife and I had our first kid and it was, yeah, it was a terrifying experience and uh, a lot of that, that terror kind of came out in the, that's what the story was about really. Do you feel kind of particularly like you shouldn't be writing that <laughs> in a sense? No, it's, um, you know, obviously that, there are lots of wonderful things about it too, but I don't, it's not the kind of story that I, I write. But is that um, a thing that if you take influences from... Uh, from your day-to-day life when you're writing stories do you, do you ever feel sort of like you shouldn't or there's always something there's always a, a kind of nugget of, of reality in the, in the story it's always based on something personal I think to make the story a, um, give it a kind of emotional richness it needs to come from something I've experienced myself or something I've felt myself but then you know in the, the process of actually turning it into a, a story into the kind of stories I write involves mutating it a huge amount and there's nothing in, there's nothing in there that you can say that was a direct experience I had my wife didn't have 37 babies um, just one at a time I'm not writing no, biography yeah, it's, it's, I suppose it's kind of uh, a thing of having the exaggerated reality I suppose of short stories you can, you can, you can use your own experiences um, in a way that won't like, lose any friends or... I try not to think about you know whether my if I'm writing something weird, whether my um, whether my parents might read it one day, so that, that wouldn't be able to to write if I worried about that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> Would they have they read your book? Yeah, yeah my, I know my mum at least has read the whole uh, really? 
the whole of instruction manual, yeah. I don't know what she thinks. You'll have to ask her. <laughs> She's still talking to me anyway. <laughs> I think everyone needs, needs permission in some some way to do what they, they really, you know, when you're creating anything. I, my attitude to my own writing changed an awful lot after I'd had my first story published. Um, the first story I ever published was the 40 Litre Monkey. And, um, you know, it's quite an odd, an odd story. And get recognition that doing, you know, do, doing that kind of thing is okay, that people would want to read it afterwards. Kind of, I felt like I had license to carry on and do... Um, do more in that in that vein. That mission is such a. Um, it's really hard to go on without it, without knowing that. Yeah, was the stories you'd written previous to that that hadn't been published? Were they were they like a different style? Were you trying out different sort of types of writing? I experimented a lot. I wrote a lot of different things. I, I wrote a um, a children's novel. I wrote lots of. Um, when I first started writing shorts, a lot of them were very, very derivative, and you could say that's a lot like William Burroughs. That's a lot like William Burroughs. <laughs> that's um, yeah, that, that could be uh, Will Self or or uh, you know, I wrote a lot of more, much more kind of straight science fictiony stories as well. Um, I got excited about writing the stories which were you know set in very mundane was with odd things happening within them and then Forty Leads Monkey was one of the, the my kind of most successful attempts at doing that the point that, that was published I've been writing every day for 10 years and gathering rejection letters and uh, I'm really glad it was that story that was the first one that got got published because it um, did, you, did you feel like it was the best thing you'd written at the time when you wrote it yeah it probably it probably was actually written a Huge amount of rubbish that's that sits up in the attic. You think you think of like um, I've said this before in the last recording, so I might hear this out. But like you, you you think of like a book set that you just want to spend ages working on making it perfect. And that's what it's like. But if you know if you could wipe it out of existence and make them do it again, it would you know it, it would probably be different. It's like there's always like an improvisational kind of. Uh, yeah, improvise. That's the word I can think of. Really. Improvising a book as you go along. It's like in Jurassic Park when the when the bead of water runs one way, one way down the back of uh, Jeff Goldblum's wrist, and then when he does it again, it runs a different way. It's a, <laughs> yeah, you know, you wouldn't get the same result. No. It's a very, you know, half of it's a very private, um, intimate, personal thing, but then it is a the end product is for for someone else, but. When you're when you're writing a story, you're creating it in your mind, and then the whole process of writing it, and whether you read it aloud to someone or or they read it in a in a book, it's just about putting that same story into their mind. Lots of other people in the past have described it as kind of a, an act of telepathy, but with but via a, um, you know a printed a printed word or a recording. It's putting what, an idea from your head into someone else's head. When I'm writing, I'm very, very conscious of the end, the end reader, because I spent so much of my working career in copywriting and advertising copywriting, where it's all you do all day long is focus on the the end reader and what action you want them to take mm. after seeing whatever it is that you've 
put in front of them. Whenever I sit down to write, what I'm thinking about is how it's coming across to the person who's holding the book or sitting in an audience if I'm reading at an, an event. Did the copywriting come before writing, or did it go hand in hand? No, I've been writing writing fiction since I was a, a teenager. I started doing copywriting. Uh, I guess in my mid twenties. Yeah, so I, I began that work because I had an ability to, to write just because I'd spent so long writing writing fiction and uh, I just really enjoyed it. You know, I was working for um, for the RSPB, so it was so everything that I was writing there. I knew it was you know it was contributing to to saving the planet in some way. So it, you could could be writing for a better thing. And my copywriting now, I, I, I'm, a, you know, I'm freelancing, but it's just, but just for charities. Um, so I you know, help help charities you know, using my writing to help them get you know, more funds or volunteers or whatever they need to, to operate. Yeah, can I have a tea? Yes, thank you. Before it was four pounds for a child's orange juice. What? Yeah. Bloody hell. <laughs> was it a magic orange juice? <laughs> it was like um, South Bank orange juice, so it was probably more than some of Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It might be because, like, I think. Uh, your book was like one of the first comma books that I, I think I bought. Yeah. I just associate comma with those things with like Instruction Manager as well. That's very nice to say. They are, they're brilliant. They are um, they're a fantastic publisher and they uh, they published the second story I ever have published and it was sort of on the back of that that Instruction Manual came together. So they have, every year they have a like an open submission thing where they ask people just to send in stories and then they pick the best ones and put it, put it into a, an anthology. And they had a in 2000, I think it was 2004, they had one called Parenthesis they were putting together. So I sent um, my story Testicular Cancer versus the Behemoth in for that. Rob Page is the editor there. Got in touch uh, a few weeks later and said, "Oh, we, you know, you'd, you'd, we'd love to include your story in this book." And you know, have you got any more? And uh, uh, you know, at this point, I've been writing for years. So I said, "Yeah, I've got, I've got shit legs." So I, I sent them over a whole bunch of stories. And he came back and said, "Oh, we'd, we'd love to do a single of the collection." That's you know, the best news I've ever had. I was just so so happy after so many years of. Uh, struggling to get things published it was just such a relief that they'd, they'd seen something in my, in my stories that they really really liked so I was just so grateful to have, to have met them they are brilliant they do so many uh, you know I love write, writing commissions but it was a really interesting brief I've done lots recently where there's lots about five, three or four anthologies where they put together scientists and writers. So yeah, the last one called Day It Changed. When It Changed, when yeah. Changed. That was the first one that I did in um, Litmus oh, yeah, recently, but always, always with a, you know, a, different, a different theme. So Litmus was about moments of scientific discovery, so the Eureka moments where you know, the big scientific discoveries were, were made. But every time I've done one of these, I've got to hang out with a really fascinating scientist for the 
for the day and um, find out all about their, their research and they go away and write a, write a story about it. Being very consistent, uh, they make sure they put, they put the right people in and get, you know, pay the right amount of attention to detail and everything and get it all sort of seems to hang together really well. I don't know how it is at other publishers but Ralph can be very, he's a very hands-on editor and if, you know, I've sent stories to him where he's sometimes he's been quite critical of the directions it might, you know, a particular story might have gone off at. I really trust his trust his instincts. In an instruction manual for swallowing the 40 litre monkey, when it was first published, had a different a different ending. He hadn't really particularly liked the the ending, and when we talked about other ways it could could end, and uh, he came up with something something different. And I really appreciate is that you know he takes the takes the time to really uh, get inside all of the all of the stories. So I've just I've been through that process with him for my my new book, and um, you know there are, there are some in there that that he really loved, and there are others that he that he hated. And uh, it's you know, the, in the, the selecting of the stories to fit the particular theme of the collection, so it then becomes a, a collaborative act. And I don't know whether. And if I'm talking to other writer friends, I don't think that's always the. I don't think that's, that's. I don't think that's very common. Did you start sort of thinking of yourself as a professional writer as of the collection coming out? All the thousands of writers out there who at the moment who haven't had their first publication yet, but who have spent years writing, is there something that holds you back from saying I'm a I'm a writer? That was the same for me. I didn't think I could say that about myself until I'd had something published. You know, I'm still not. I'm still not writing exclusively for a for a living. I don't. You know, I, I don't. You know, it can be frustrating sometimes, and I think, oh, it would be it would be wonderful just to be able to dedicate a, you know my entire working life to it. Um, at the same time, there's a having a career as well as writing fiction means you come across lots of different circumstances. You meet lots of other people. It's the it's kind of living a life that provides the the meat for your fiction. If you're, if you're, your life is just writing, I don't know whether you, like copywriting careers meant like, you know, constantly in demand to come up with creative solutions to, to briefs. So that keeps my, that part of my mind very active. Do you do many public sort of, they're part of writing, I don't really know if, yeah. I always find a bit, I find like going to readings can be, I never, I never really enjoyed them. <laughs> I don't know why. I just find it really hard to concentrate on people standing on stage reading their stories. Really? Not always, but like a lot of the time I do. Do you listen to audiobooks at all? Do you yeah, do? sometimes, yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't have a problem with them for some reason. Just, just for some just reason, sitting there in the stage, just my mind starts to wonder, sort of like looking at people. Maybe you're going to see the wrong writers. <laughs> don't really, maybe. maybe. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed doing readings. I, um, I get invited to do quite a quite a few you know when I first started the idea of standing on a on a stage to um, to read aloud was absolutely terrifying when I was um I was short shortlisted for the um, Douglas Copeland award that Holt Dopnick um, did about, about 10 years ago on the the prize giving night it was at the Poetry Cafe in London and everyone all the shortlistees had to read out their story and it was the first reading I'd ever done in public and uh, I couldn't eat for a day beforehand and I was absolutely petrified at school I was so scared of having to do 
read in front of the class or you know do a class assembly. I used to fake being ill on the days where I had to do it to get out of doing it. I was absolutely petrified. But as I got invited to do more and more readings, you know, the second one was slightly easier than the first, and the third one was slightly easier than that. And uh, the more and more I've done, the more I've enjoyed them. And and now, you know, I love doing them now. It's, uh, I get an awful lot out of it. It's, uh, there's no better way to know when you've done something right on the page and when you see an audience's reaction to it. You know, mm. it's, in a sense, it seems like it seems, like I was saying before, it seems weird. It's such like a solitary thing that you'd also have this perfor- literally a performance part of it. That you'd be standing on stage telling people about something you've made and then reading it out. I love that now. I love the when I'm sitting in my attic writing something. The thought that one day in a month or a year I might be standing on a stage reading it to, to 100 people means I've got to get it right that puts a lot of pressure on me to, to, to make it as good as it can possibly be and be really ruthless with anything that's not anything that's not quite right it keeps you on your toes yeah, uh, I, I love going to, to readings and to festivals I go to lots, lots of uh, lots of events to see people read and the, um, have you ever been to the Small Wonder Festival in Charleston Absolutely brilliant festival, just purely short story festival. It's four or five days long um, in September, and it's just non-stop short story readings. And the, the, you know the, the real uh, yeah. natural readings take place in a in a barn, and there's a the rest of the year it's like a milking barn. They clear it all out. They put comfy chairs in there and a stage and everything, and it looks very lovely. And then in the background you get. Like the milky machines might start in the in the middle of a reading where you hear the cows moo and it's just, it's just it's just a lovely atmosphere there. It's such an intense experience because you you might hear twelve short stories if you're there for the, the whole day being for a, say a Saturday. You hear twelve you know, brilliant short stories and just at the end of the day, I, I, I come away feeling absolutely exhausted, you know, filled, filled up, but overflowing as well. Yeah. It's a really in, intense, lovely experience. I, I really enjoy li- listening to people read. I listen to a lot of audio books as well, especially like them if the authors read them themselves, because it changes the way you perceive their their writing. There are certain writers that once you've heard them read their own work, when you read their stuff afterwards, you can't help but hear their voice. So someone like um, like William Burroughs is the ultimate thing, when he, yeah. because he's just got such distinct. Well, yeah, he's usually writing with very distinctive voices. Will Self is yeah, any art form. It's trying to make the audience have some kind of emotional reaction. That's why we go and that's why we listen to musical read books, go to films, is to have. An emotional connection with it to be experience something via via someone else or some something else, but trying to achieve that on the trying to create the thing that might, gives that emotional changes. Yeah, that's why it takes a long a long time to be good at any kind of art because it's it's a it's a craft. It's that there are you know people's minds working in a particular way. There are and learning how to. You know, construct stories so that they appeal to people in a certain way. It's, uh, it takes a lot of, a lot of practice, a lot of study. You ever heard of a writer or read anything by Robert Aikman? He's a short story writer who was around in the 60s and uh, 70s and he wrote short stories. They're always classed as ghost stories, but they're weird tales that people have. They've got more in common with like Raymond Carver and Haruki Murakami than, yeah. than horror, but 
it's kind of forgotten now. You can get some favour editions, but it's just there's something there's there's a quality to his writing that's just impossible to actually put your, your, your finger on why it works and why it's so addictive. But it's, it's always there. And the liner notes for a Nico album, someone who sort of reissued it, and they wrote in the liner notes that you don't listen to the album. It's it's a hole you fall into. And it's the same with Robert Aikman <laughs> for me. It's just this this writer I found. It's just this. this Strange quality that I just can't find in any other writing, and I can't really, can't really define what the quality is. But it's, it's the power of the story is always that thing. I've just jotted down his name, so I'll, uh, I'll he's go good. He's great. I've never, yeah, there was a documentary uh, by Jeremy Dyson on Radio Four, and he said something that was kind of weird and true. The more you read him, the more strange things happen to you in your day-to-day life. So I sort of got into him and read a lot of stories and just found like strangers talking to him in the street and uh, found myself ending up in strange places and strange situations that didn't usually happen or if they did I never particularly noticed them in that way. Wow. It's, uh, that's, it's, got, it's, that's quite an amazing effect yeah, to be able to achieve that to make people see see the things around them in different ways got to be the one of the pinnacles of, of achievement in that to be able to share your your vision so that someone else can kind of glimpse it in, in their everyday life is a, is a major achievement. I'm intrigued to, to read him now. That's what I like um, Haruki Murakami so much. There's just something about he can be writing about boiling spaghetti or making soup, and it's just there's just something about the way he writes that I just. I just absolutely love it. It's just the, the cleanness to it, and um, it's so tactile. I don't know what it, uh, I don't know specifically what it is, but mm. he could be writing about anything, and I would love it. Have you read Karen Russell? No. If you like, if you like strange things, and she, you, you really like her. She's brilliant. She's written one collection of short stories called um, Saint Lucy's Home for Girls Raised by Wolves. Ah, uh, yeah. I think I might have seen that. And her novel just came out this year called Swamplandia, which is based on was one of the short stories. Of this. Um, the first story in her collection is set in this in this world of a Gator Park, and it's the novel kind of builds on that on that mm. short story. She's fantastic. There's a book that came out. It's like a massive, massive compendium of like weird stories. It's, I think it's called like weird stories, but it's about like two thousand pages long, and it's on the page it's like double. Like really, oh, like, like a bible because it's because there's so, oh, like, so many stories. Yeah. Wow. Um, so she's probably in that because it's really, really comprehensive, and that's got loads, loads of sort of forgotten writers. It starts in like 18th century or something, and then oh. comes to the present day. There's this hidden thing that's been going on in literature for a long time that people are kind of you know more keen on investigating and not just kind of going into horror or you know it's science fiction. Is this Name attached to it other than weird. <laughs> I quite like that. About it. I think there's just, inter- just yeah. something interesting about fitting in, the, in between the spaces of the, mm. other people, other people working, and you know, it's just when I sit down to write, how do you worry about the? You know, just a huge amount of. Literature that's already out there. I mean, why would anyone read anything that that I write? I think it's got to be it's got to be something that doesn't exist at the moment. Otherwise, um, they'll go and find it from from someone else. So, you know, being finding something that's original that's not been done before. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's such a thing as 
pure original thought or original ideas, but there are original combinations of things. Yeah. You put together things that don't exist. Conceits and things that no one's no one's thought of. I think everyone writes short stories like when they start writing. Yeah, they're a good way to to learn your learn your craft. I mean, learning how to you know telling a story is you know whether your story is three pages long or three hundred pages long, it's got it's got some kind of arc to it and yeah. learning to tell a story is what you can do it you can do it a lot more times if you're writing short stories so they are um, you know, writing them is a great great training you can try out lots of different things you've lots of different voices and points yeah. of view and then so yeah to, to try and learn writing learn how to be a writer starting with a novel just be excruciating yeah. because uh, but then I think you know the people who are the really great short story writers, the ones that don't just see it as a training exercise, are the ones that you know build a, a career out of that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's I suppose it's since the eighties really that it's become this thing that you could do as a writer, not making any money out of it, particularly anything, but it's a thing you could be just be a person who does short stories and considers them as worthy of concentration and uh, passion and effort as a novel. It's, it's also strange that now you get flash fiction that people sort of trying to do something even shorter. Yeah. You wonder if that'll sort of be the next thing that'll be, you know, you'll get sort of some very successful and famous flash fiction writers who will then be other people trying to write something. Sort of, it's become more and more concentrated, so you just get word artists trying to like expletive from one of the chickens outside, and then there was another, coupled with a dull thud. Out of bed, Hal stuck his head into the hoverfly graveyard between netting and pain to see that in the enclosure directly below the window, two of the chickens were dead, and then a third fell right there as Hal watched. Something had shot down from the sky and smacked its head against the chicken wire, felling it with a squawk, a black pebble, the kind Maddie and his boys were collecting from the lakeshore just yesterday, right outside the holiday house they'd fled to. Now, the other stones in the pen, the ones that had killed the first two chickens, were conspicuous beside them. Three stones, three dead chickens. Hal followed the line of trajectory back, all the way across to the other side of the lake, where there was a person, a male, young. His white t-shirt was vivid against the dark wall of conifers behind as he curled his arm, winding himself up onto his back foot. He uncoiled with a coordinated swish that took in the whole of his body, terminating at his fingertips. The pebble he threw only became visible at the top of its arc as it rounded against the brightening sky. Its descent was invisible until it flared into being again upon the head of chicken number four. Now, almost half the coop was killed. These were not Hal's chickens, but while he rented the house by the lake, they were his charges. Indignation took him outside in his pyjamas, stopping only to plunge his feet into the still damp boots that waited by the porch door. Oi! he yelled with his hands cupped either side of his mouth. What the hell are you doing? The other side of the lake was far, five minutes in a rowboat or a ten-minute walk round the side, too far to think about chasing the kid off. 
Again, the boy cocked his arm back and threw. Hal retreated to the porch, imagining what havoc a pebble lobbed with such force might wreak on his skull. Hal heard the whistle of the stone displacing air as it shot into the coop and struck the back of chicken number five. The remaining four hopped up against the wire, all in the same corner, as if once there had been a door there. Hal's binoculars were hanging on one of the hooks in the porch alongside musty raincoats and propped oars. His hands shook as he looked through them, jiggling the image of the boy in the lenses. Hal did not feel the same sense of invisibility that he felt when watching the red starts and flycatchers in the woods behind the house. Instead, he felt an increased sense of vulnerability, as if he were physically closer to the boy and therefore an easier target, if there were such a thing as an easier target to this demon who'd felled five chickens with five stones from an impossible distance. Impossible because he'd thrown stones from the shore himself with his boys on several occasions over the last week. There'd been no attempts to throw stones to the other side because it was inconceivably far. They'd thrown only for the pleasure of throwing. The boy looked only a year or two older than Joseph, the eldest of his boys, maybe eleven or twelve. He moved with a disquieting confidence for a child. His hair was long at the front, a blonde fringe that hung over his right eye all the way to his mouth. He stooped again and the range of his spine stood out all the way down his back. When he stood and threw, the thrust of his arm, the coiling and uncoiling of energy in his form was breathtaking. Here was art, prodigious skill, and in his face an Olympian's focus. Not the snarl Hal had expected, the kind of wonky facial arrangement that the local yahoos presented when they goaded him from the bus shelter on his trips to the chemist. This boy looked like a good boy. He was clean, and were he in a playing field hurling baseballs, his fringe tucked inside a cap, he would be a magnet for admiration. The sixth chicken fell. For God's sake, will you stop? he yelled from the porch. The force of the words drove spit from his lips. I have children in the house. I have a sick child. This isn't our house. These aren't my chickens. There were footsteps on the stairs, and then the inner door to the porch opened. It was Maddie in a pair of Hal's pyjamas. Get back upstairs, Hal said. There's a crazy kid out there throwing stones. Throwing stones? Maddie came fully into the porch, rubbing the heel of her palm in her eye. The seventh chicken was struck in such a way that a flurry of feathers sprang out from the point of impact on its lower back. Its last cluck was a wheeze. Now the remaining two were hopping from one corner to the next, frantic, bobbing their heads forward, stepping round their fallen comrades. Don't go out there, Maddie said, as Hal flung open the door and bolted outside. Across the lake, the boy passed a pebble from right hand to left. Hal ran, and while he ran, he threw his hands up into the air and called out, Stop! Once again, but the boy did not stop. Get in here, you idiot, Maddie said, her head venturing no more than an inch or two outside. Have you called the police yet? I'm going to call the police. While Hal's fingers were on the latch of the coop, he saw the boy throw. Hal flicked the metal hook from the eye. The chicken wire bit into his fingers as he lifted the door to swing it open. He scampered back to the house and was at the porch door when he turned and saw the eighth chicken fall, twitching. One of its legs kicked a regular beat in the dirt. It managed maybe ten of these kicks before a second stone struck its head, making its legs buck up off the ground. Is the number for the police still the same on a mobile? Maddie said. 
The boys were on the stairs now, and Maddie yelled at them, Get back in your room, keep away from the windows. But her panic brought smiles to their faces, widened their eyes, quickened their footsteps. Hal barked with exasperation at the last chicken, whose timid evacuation of the cage was happening one slow strut at a time. Hal's shouts did nothing but force blinks out of its dumb face. Again the boy stooped. Hal ran out, leaping from side to side, corralling the chicken into the corner where the coop butted up against the house. Inside, Maddie held the boys back with her outstretched leg while she translated this event into terse statements of fact for the emergency services operator. The back of Hal's neck prickled, sensitive to the stone's accelerating descent. He raked his fingers through the soft dirt and flung a handful of powdered soil and tiny stones to the left of the chicken, causing her to flap and flee, stranding herself in the corner, head pushed up against the house. And it was here that Hal seized her, throwing the whole length of himself into the dirt. With the chicken squeezed between his two palms, he rolled onto his back, pivoted on his backside, and was up and out of the way just as the stone hit the spot where he'd been less than a second ago and bounced up against the whitewood panels of the house. Inside the safety of the porch, the boys were amazed at the sight of a chicken alive indoors. Hal held it aloft, his pride immovable under the blizzard of Maddie's curses. Are the police on their way? he asked. Such a moron, thick as pig shit, Maddie continued, risking your life for a goddamn chicken, the boys and me alone in the house. Who's out there, Dad? Joseph asked. Are the chickens really all dead? All but this one, Hal said, holding it up again. The chicken's neck was fully elongated, its head swivelling left and right, eyes rapid blinking, camera shutters to take everything in. Hal looked out the window at the boy across the lake, but only just glimpsed him walking away before the window exploded inwards. The boys screamed. Something flashed across Hal's face. His whole world shattered into bright fragments. They were stunned by the sound of shards striking floor tiles. Hands and arms threw up protectively, backs turned away from the window. There was blood, and all the while he held the chicken high, his arms maintaining their stalwart position against the chaos. Only when all the glass had fallen and the clatter was ended could Hal comprehend the scene. The faces of Maddie and both boys were spattered with blood. He felt something well up on his eyebrow and drip down onto his cheekbone. The chicken was decapitated, still kicking between his hands. Its blood ran down his arms, gathering at his elbows. They were each stranded in a sea of glass, Maddie ordering them not to move, she and the boys barefoot. Their walking boots were cups for long and wicked splinters. Outside, the boy was gone.